Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good morning, everyone. It is Friday, September the 23rd, 2022. It is currently 1120 a.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. And right here next to me is my Bible, and it is open to the book of Amos. And this is, I believe, episode number 19 in our study of the book of Amos. I think it's been an interesting study. I hope it's been beneficial. I am a little irritated with myself, not with you and not with the study, but with myself, because I kind of made a mistake on, I I guess Wednesday night, I kind of made the mistake. I thought on Wednesday night, I know what we'll do. Um, We've worked on chapter one. We've worked on chapter two, right? We've worked on both chapters. Uh, We've done a little, and we've used uh, the teaching of Dr. J. Vernon McGee from Through the Bible Ministries. They've given us permission to use their content, but we're using it more like he's giving his perspective. I'm asking questions, just trying to give you, uh, you know, to get you into the chapters a little bit more. I've raised some questions in regards to chapter one to try to get us into that chapter a little bit more. So I think I've done a pretty decent job with chapter one and chapter two. So in my mind, I'm like, I know what I'll do Wednesday night at church. I'll take the curriculum, since we have not mentioned the curriculum, we haven't talked about the curriculum, and I'll use it because the curriculum begins with chapter two. We haven't moved on to chapter three, so we'll do some additional work in chapter two, and that will be greatly beneficial to everyone, and it'll give them something to kind of, okay, here's, because, you know, for those who may not know what's going on, in the Bible study exercise, I've given everyone a Bible study study method to use. So those who are participating, they've already done their work on chapter one and chapter two, so then they can hear me offer some different insights into chapter two, which may then have them go back and add something to what they've done in their own Bible study. Well, it sounded like a good idea, right? Because we haven't looked at the curriculum and I don't want that curriculum to go to waste since we're paying good money for that curriculum, right? We're paying what, $50 a month for the the two study guides that we've made available to everyone every month or for every quarter, but but it's a monthly subscription we have to pay. So um, I'm like, okay, um, I want people to actually open it up and use it. So I thought I would do that. And I, it was good. It raised some very interesting questions. It really, there was a lot of good things about the the exercise that we did. The only problem is we didn't finish it. <laughs> we didn't finish it. So do I, do I come here and finish what we started in chapter two? No, I want to do it with the people at the church. So then what do I do now? I know what I'll do. So, so we're going to really have kind of two competing tracks going on. And I hope that doesn't, I hope that doesn't confuse anyone. We obviously, and and so far in this, we've had the things I've been doing at the church, right? We did some of the observational reading at the church. We did a little bit of the work on chapter one, where is this prophecy or is this not? We, We answered that question at the church. And then we did a little work with the curriculum in chapter two at the church. So while that's going on, I've been doing things here using the teaching of Dr. J. Vernon McGee. And of course, you're doing your thing with following and using the Bible study method. So in a sense, we kind of have three, I guess we could call it three different tracks in our study in Amos. I hope that's okay. I hope it's okay. I know it's a definitely a unique and different approach, but this is a massive undertaking trying to use the comprehensive, you know, 
uh, book Bible study method. It's, it's, it's a very overwhelming method. So I hope that all of this proves to be very beneficial. And maybe later on when people find this series and they go back and listen to everything, they're like, wow, that was a lot on the book of Amos. I felt like I got a, you know, Bible college level. I got a seminary level course on, on the book of Amos just done in a far more unique way than just your standard teaching. We've, we've used so many different kinds of things and elements that hopefully by the time this is done, anyone who actually participated can, can honestly say, I'm never going to forget the book of Amos. I've got that book down. And if I can accomplish that, even though it may be a unconventional approach, then I'm going to take that as a win. I'm going to take that as, as success. I'm going to take that as a victory because that's all I really care about. I don't care if people can criticize the way, well, you should have organized it this way. You should have done this. There's lots of that criticism that would be valid. But if, if somehow in my way of approaching this, it actually leads people to remembering the book more then I will take the criticism and just be happy that people remember the book of Amos, because I want you to really, really, really know the book. So probably Sunday night, we'll, we'll probably go back to Amos chapter two at the church looking at the curriculum, and maybe uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll do some work in the curriculum and there. But for now, we're going to go to chapter three, utilizing the teaching of Dr. J. Vernon McGee, because we've all, we, we went all through chapter one and chapter two with Dr. J. Vernon McGee. We can't stop now. So that, I think we're going to just, we're going to, I'm just going to press on with this and see how much we can gain from it. Sounds good? So here we go. Again, through the Bible Ministries gave us permission to use this, so I technically could just play it, but we're really using it in more of a unique way. Hey, we're, we're giving his teaching, and then I'm contrasting it with my own thoughts and my own perspective. I, the last episode I did analyzing his teaching, I raised some serious questions and how he handled part of chapter two when it comes to what Israel did to the Nazarites. Um, you can, to those who have taken a Nazarite vow, uh, you can, um, well, I, I asked some people today for them to answer the question because no one had really answered it. So you can go back and, and contemplate that. I'm just trying to give you specific things in the text like, hey, what about that? What about that? Because I, 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 I'm trying my best to make sure that we just, we don't overlook anything. We had a good discussion this morning um, and the Discord channel over what's the key verse, What's the key verse in the book of Amos? Two individuals pointed to chapter three. What, what do you think the key verse is? You can let me know that as well. But for now, let's go back. Dr. J. Vernon McGee, I don't remember what year this was, but he's teaching through the book of Amos. So we're going to jump in and let's see, well, what, what his perspective is on chapter three. And let's see if it answers your questions, creates more questions, adds confusion, or brings great clarity. We're about to find out. All of the nation together, God's charge now is against the whole house of Israel. That Okay, that started not quite where I wanted that to start. Okay, let me see if I can back this up. Let's see if we can move this up a little bit. Okay, we're, this is going to be a little bit back further. It's still in chapter two because the transition from two to three is like barely a breath. So I'm going to have to back it up so we can ease into chapter three. Two old children of Israel against the whole family. 
which I brought up from the land of Egypt. God ignored the fact that they were split. Now he said, okay, let's, let's try that again. Why is it not? It, it keeps skipping where I want it to go. So let's see if I can back this up. Let's see if we can back this up. There we go. Now we should be right in the right spot. Say he's not through. Now in chapter three, He's going to bring all of the nation together. God's charge now is against the whole house of Israel, the 12 tribes, though they're divided. Listen to him. Hear this word that the Lord hath spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt. God ignored the fact that they were split. This is interesting. There, there's a couple of interesting just things about Amos. First, the reverse order. He starts with the other nations, then he moves to Judah, then he moves to Israel, right? So it's just typically in the other prophets, he starts with Israel, then goes to the other nations. In Amos, he starts with the other nations, judgment, 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 then Judah, then Israel. Now in chapter three, I'll read it to you, chapter three, verse one. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family, which I brought up from the land of Egypt. So Amos's structure is start with all the other nations, then mention Judah, then mention Israel as separate. Then in chapter three, boom, both of you. Very, very interesting. Is there, is there something? I mean, I think, I think everyone would notice that. I think everyone will make that observation. I mean, hopefully everyone made that observation. But do you think that this is always the question? We don't want to read something into it, but we don't want to ignore it. So what do you think the significance is? Let's see. Significance is. Let's see if he offers any thoughts. Now he says, I'm speaking to the whole family that I brought up. And you're not two nations, you're one, one family before me. And he says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now, that's getting right down where the rubber meets the road. And that's the kind of prophet Amos was. He didn't beat around the bush. He didn't mince words. He says, God will punish you for your iniquities. And you know what? God did. This man happened to be right. It's too bad the politicians and the priests didn't listen to him. If they had, it could have been a different story. Now, this chapter deals with the 12 tribes of Israel. God's judgment upon the two nations, both Judah and Israel. They were separate, and they are treated that way in chapter 2. But now in chapter 3, the judgment is pronounced upon the 12 tribes, those that came out of the Assyrian captivity, those that came out of the Babylonian captivity. He calls them the whole family. And here now is that family he brought out of Egypt. They are divided now, the northern and southern kingdom. Now, in verse 2, he says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, and I take it of the nations of the earth. In other words, the sin of man after the flood was such that man at the Tower of Babel had departed from God. It was 
total apostasy at that time. And then God reached down in Ur of the Chaldees and called a man to get away from a home of idolatry and go to a place he'd show him. And he'd make of that man a nation and give him a land. Now, that's what he means here. You only have I known. In other words, in order to get a message through to the world, God had to use this method because at the Tower of Babel, man had totally rejected God. And the Tower of Babel was not built to get man up above the flood stage of water. That was never the point. It was an altar that was built apparently to the sun. And you can understand why because they had come through a flood, and they felt that the God that had brought the flood was the God of darkness, the God of the storm. And now they're going to worship the sun. And you find out that that was the worship that prevailed in that Tigris-Euphrates Valley, actually to this very day, the worship of the sun. And you have that worship of light under Zoroastrianism, even down to the present day. Now, after the flood, God chose this man, and now he takes a nation in order that he might use this nation to get a word. And he's giving the word through this nation. And finally, this word is to go to the world. And that's the reason that we're on the radio giving the total Bible is because We believe that this is God's message for the world today, not just John 3.16, as wonderful as that is, but his message for the world is not John 3.16 only, but 66 books of the Bible. And all of those books, we believe we need to know it all. Now, he says, "...you only have I known of the families of the earth." Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now, God says, I intend to judge you. Now, the nation Israel occupied this unique relationship to God. Yeah, and I think we just, we need to at least point this out. When he says in in Amos chapter 3, verse 2, you only have I known, it's a known in an intimate way. He obviously knows of all the other nations, but he has known Israel in an intimate way, right? Chose them, basically created the nation, blessed them, provided for them, protected, delivered, all the things he has done for Israel. So I have known you in a unique way. In other words, there is a relationship here, a covenant relationship here. So I I just, I think we have to understand that that known is used in a very specific way here. God gave them the commandments. That was the reason that he said, he judged Judah. I gave you the commandments. And God judged Israel because of the fact that they had broken so many of the commandments. And you see, light always creates responsibility. A privilege creates a greater responsibility than when a nation is in darkness. And this is the great principle that God puts down here. It is that he intends to judge those that have received. Now, I have to bring something up here. It's kind of an interesting question. 
Because there's this a constant discussion that light or knowledge brings responsibility. Now, the only problem with this idea or just logically thinking, well, okay, well then don't give anyone any knowledge. Like in other words, the way to keep people from being responsible is to stop the spread of knowledge. The more knowledge you give, the more responsible someone becomes. Because some people almost hold this idea, let's let's forget about Christians for a moment, that if someone's never heard the gospel, then they can't go to hell. Well, then, then we should shut down every church, get rid of every Christian podcast, burn every Bible, And we should rid the world of knowledge of Christianity, then everyone would go to heaven. The greatest evangelistic method would be destroy all knowledge about God, and then everyone goes to heaven. So, so, so that clearly, but, but I hear this a lot that somehow, well, if they don't know, or they'll, if they, if they do know, they'll, they, they will get more, a more severe punishment. And if they don't know, they'll get a lesser punishment. Well, then wouldn't still the most merciful thing to do is, is it, is it, is it risky? Do you, is the risk worth, worth it that, Hey, I'm going to risk telling them now they're going to be judged more severely. And if I don't tell them, they won't be judged more severely. Or in some people's minds, if they don't know, they go to heaven. Well, then we need to stop all everything and, and just remove all knowledge. So, I understand the concept to some degree. I do, that knowledge or light brings responsibility. But I think it's this, that isn't it God's people should be looked at in regards to God's... In other words, let me try try to explain this. For example, if I know someone who isn't a Christian, right? They're not a Christian. I don't claim to be a Christian. I have nothing to do with Christianity. Their issue isn't the fact that they're disobeying scripture. Their issue is they need salvation. I'll try try it this way. The Great Commission is to go and tell if they believe, baptize. Then it's to teach them to obey. Obedience is expected or obedience is called for by the believer. In other words, I don't go out to the world and go, no, 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 you need to follow God's law. You need to follow God's law. You need to follow God's law. They reject God, right? They need salvation. They don't need obedience to God's law. They need salvation. Obedience to God's law or the attempt to obey, because we're never going to obey it perfectly, should it that not flow from salvation, it's not something that is precedes it. So in this case, the other nations, he judges them for their for their general like the general things that they had done wrong and the way they've treated other human beings. You could maybe argue, and this would be an interesting discussion: Are these other nations being judged for how they've treated Israel? Because is it that that that's a biblical concept, right? You treat Israel, you bless Israel, you're blessed, you curse Israel, you're cursed. Is, is, is that what they're being judged for? You, you, we could have that discussion. But here in chapter three, it's about God's people, you. When he mentions Judah and he mentions Israel, hey, I'm judging you based off my law because you, you are my nation. You are God's people. God's people, we view them when we see a, a Christian sinning, we, we approach them based on God's law. Hey, God's, God's word says that's a sin because they're a Christian. We teach, we call Christians to obey what God has said. So is it, is it responsibility? Is it light that breeds responsibility or, or brings responsibility? Or is it salvation? Or is it relationship with God? 
Because if you're not careful, you lead yourself into kind of a logical fallacy here that, wait, 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 or a logical problem. Wait, logically, you're saying that the more light people get, the more trouble they're in. Well, then why do I want to give them light? Let them live in darkness and they're out of, they're, they're, they're in less trouble. But when someone becomes a Christian, when someone is a part of God's quote unquote family, God's people, well, then they get the law of God. So is it light bringing responsibility or is it relationship that brings responsibility? Just, just an interesting concept that, that you, can, you can throw around and, 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 and discuss. Light in a harsher manner than he would judge others. You know, the Lord Jesus mentioned the fact that some would receive few stripes, others more stripes. And my friend, I've made this statement many times. Now, that's borrowed from a parable, but it goes back to this concept that, man, yeah, now I think it's a very popular teaching within Christendom that some people will suffer more and some people will suffer less. Well, if you're saying some people will suffer more and I guess burn more in hell or, or hell will be hotter or the lake of fire will be hotter for them, they're going to, they're in a certain level of punishment. Well, what's, and you're going to say what creates that level of, that what determines the level of punishment is the level of knowledge one obtains. Well, then you would think we wouldn't want to give anyone any knowledge. Because what, what's, what's the chance? I mean, the Bible says few are going to be saved, right? Few are going to be saved. Many are going to be on the road that leads to destruction. Well, if many are going to be in the road that leads to destruction, the more people we tell, the greater chance they're not going to believe because only few will. And that means then there's a greater chance that they get more severe punishment. Like, do we not think of the, like the, the, the ethical implications here? Okay. I'm going to go tell that person about God. Now, the minute I do that, I'm guaranteeing they're going to burn more. They're going to suffer more. They're going to get more stripes. Wow, do, do, I, do I want to tell them then? I mean, I mean, you, you may think that's a foolish question. I think it's a reasonable question that any hopefully compassionate human being would ask because you're placing someone in a potential that they're going to suffer for all eternity more simply because you told them. Times as a pastor. I would rather be a heathen hottentot in the darkest corner of this earth, bowing down before a stone idol that is ugly and hideous. I'd rather be that hottentot than to be a civilized so-called man in this country who sits in a church on Sunday morning and hears the gospel and do nothing about it. That man that hears the word has a greater responsibility than the man out yonder. And now, please note how that works. According to this kind of theology, you would rather be living in a, in a you know, a, a, a jungle somewhere, bowing down to an idol, not knowing anything, because it's you've got less responsibility. But if you are in America where there's a church and you go to church, boom, you get more responsibility. Now, here, I, here, here's what I have to ask: How does this concept work in the and the idea that all human beings are totally depraved? So if I'm totally dead in my trespasses and sins, I can't save myself. God has to save me. 
but somehow, so I can't save myself, but if I hear the gospel, I'm going to burn more or I'm going to get punished more because of my responsibility, but I can't do anything about my responsibility because God is the one who has to grant salvation. And again, if the person is less responsible in the jungle somewhere bowing down to an idol, then why do we want to send missionaries to them? Like this raises some serious questions. This raises serious questions about like, like, do we really care about people? Because I'm getting a little concerned with how this would work. But let's see if he, if he flushes this out anymore. That means there are different degrees of punishment, by the way. And now... All right, so he believes in different degrees of punishment. Now, I know this is common. I know that there's probably a lot of people listening to me who believe in different degrees of punishment. But he's he's saying the degrees of punishment is not even based on the sins you commit. It's based on the knowledge you have. So the more you know, the greater your punishment will be. But I again, my my confusion is, well, wait a minute. Whether you have lots of knowledge or whether you have no knowledge, you are still a depraved sinner dead in your trespasses and sins. And all of the knowledge in the world can't save you. God has to save you. So does this only work in a very semi-Pelagian synergistic theology? And it does not work in a monergistic theology. And remember, he's pulling all this from Amos. So I would be, it'd be interesting because all those other nations sound like they're going to suffer pretty bad. So does Amos support the idea that your knowledge increases your responsibility and the lack of knowledge lessens your responsibility? Do you think Amos supports that theory and this concept? He makes it very clear that he intends to punish them for your iniquities. Now, a great many, they like to hear about the love of God, and it's wonderful. And I don't think anyone's emphasized the love of God more than we have. I think that it's something that we need to rest upon, and it's something that we need to rejoice in. But we need to recognize also that when the love of God is rejected as it's manifested in the cross of Christ, because actually that's the only place you really see the love of God. When he gave his son, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. That's where he revealed it. And when that love is rejected, then nothing is left but punishment. Now, a great many people don't think God ought to punish, but since they are not running the universe, I'm of the opinion that their viewpoint will not be followed, nor I do not think God will listen to it. God already says that he's a holy, righteous, just God, and he intends to punish. We have here, beginning with verse 3, a very interesting set of questions. In fact, there are seven questions that are asked and answered, and these questions are quite logical and reveals what a matter-of-fact prophet Amos really was. This man got right down, friends, to the place where two plus two equals four. He got right down where you and I live today. 
And here we find him dealing with certain great truths. And actually, as others have pointed out, what you have here, this man Amos, who was from the country, way down yonder in Tekoa, in the wilderness, he draws from his long experience down there these lessons in nature, in the natural world. And he learns something that a great many folk need to learn today that do not really know where a great many things come from. I never shall forget when my daughter was growing up here in Pasadena at a school, they took them out to a dairy. And she came home with the most exciting news that you've ever heard, friend. She told us that milk came from a cow. She thought that you got it over at the market, that you just reached in and took out a bottle or a paper carton of milk, and that's where it originated. It was an amazing fact. Well, this man, Amos, he's a countryman. He knows a great deal about nature, and it reveals he'd observed things. Now he's going to mention some of them as we go along. The first question is this. Can two walk together? Can two walk together? Yes. Except they be agreed. They can't go together if they're not in agreement. I watched a young couple the other day, haven't been married long, and they were walking down the street arm in arm. And all of a sudden, she turned around and stamped her little foot and started walking back toward their home. And he kept going. They weren't walking together. Something had happened. They'd had a disagreement. Probably one of their first fights, by the way. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Here is a cause and an effect. The cause is there must be agreement if you're to walk together with God. And the result will be, if you're to walk with Him, there must be agreement. Now, that doesn't mean that God's going to come over and agree with you. You and I will have to come over and agree with Him. Someone has said that God rides triumphantly in His own chariot. And if you don't want to get under the wheels of those chariots, you better get aboard and ride. After all, God is carrying through his purpose in the world. You and I got here pretty late, you know, and frankly, we're not going to be here very long. So your will and my will, it will not prevail at all. I was very much interested in visiting in England those castles at Windsor Court, at Windsor Castle, Hampton Court, where Henry VIII, and I think of poor Henry VI and I think of Richard II. Some of those boys made a trip to the tower, lost their heads there. The very interesting thing is they had their way for a little while, Henry did, but nobody's paying attention about what Henry VIII thought or what he did. My friend, may I say to you that if you're going to walk with God, you're going to have to go his way. Now, let's keep moving. That's the first question. And it's a great principle that is put down here. How can two walk together except they be agreed? Now, the second question is, verse 4, 
Will a lion roar in the forest when he hath no prey? Of course not. A lion, you know, goes through the forest stealthily, quietly, silently, padded feet, never even crushes or breaks a limb. And then when he pounces on his prey and has his prey, you can hear him roar. He's not going to roar lest he gets his prey. And the other is, will a young lion cry out of his den if he've taken nothing? No, the little lion, he doesn't make a sound. His mama told him to keep quiet while she was away getting something for him to eat, getting his supper. And when she comes back with it and he sees it, then he lets out a real squeal. And at that time, he lets out a cry, but not tell then. You see, there is always a cause and a result. And the judgment of God follows man's iniquity, and it will follow. Now, we come to the fourth question. Can a bird fall in a... It is interesting that the idea of the roar, it happens here in chapter 3, verse uh, 4. Will a lion roar in the forest when he hath no prey? Because back in chapter 1, we the Lord will roar from Zion. So, in a sense, God has his prey. The Lord will roar from Zion, utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the habitations of the shepherds will mourn, and the top of Carmel shall wither. The Lord is roaring. So, so it, the Lord is roaring. Do you know why? Well, he has the prey. Who is the prey? Well, in chapter 3, it's Israel, the whole family, because they they have their iniquities are about to be judged. Well, will a young lion cry out of his den? Well, it's there's a cry going forth. Why? Because well, uh, uh, he God has taken. He's about to take something. He's he's bringing his judgment. Is that the way you under? I mean, these questions have to be have to relate somehow to obviously the broader themes. How do you handle these questions? What what's your thoughts on these questions? Let's let's see what else he does with the next one. Snare. Upon the earth where no trap is for him? Of course not. That's perfect nonsense to say that you can catch a bird by... And they told me as a boy that if you just put salt on their tail, you could catch them. And as a kid, I ran all over the whole neighborhood trying to get salt on a bird's tail, but it didn't work. And the problem was the same principle that is here. You can't catch the bird without a trap, you see. And in nature, there is always this principle that is followed, cause and effect. If you're going to catch a bird, you're going to have to have a trap. Now, we have another one here. Shall one take up a snare from the earth and have taken nothing in it at all? A man's not just going to keep setting a trap if he's not catching anything. I used to have six traps as a boy, and I would ride down on my bicycle every morning before school in the fall of the year to see if I'd caught anything. And generally in six traps, one of them would have a possum in it, maybe a rabbit, and sometimes a skunk. And I gave the skunk always to a friend of mine, and he went down and got it. You could get more for the fur, but I didn't care for the scent. And so when I had a trap in a place and day after day, 
nothing was in it, well, that's foolish to leave it there. Moved it to some other place. If you're going to put out a trap now, you expect to catch something in the trap. Now, the sixth verse here, "...shall a trumpet be blown in the city, and the people not be afraid?" When there is the sound of alarm given, are people not going to be afraid? Now, God has said He's going to judge the people, and judgment is coming. It's rather foolish not to respond to that. So the question is, about these questions... What is the main point he's trying to make about these questions? What is the what is the simple summary of here are these was it seven? I think it's seven. Seven questions. What is what's the main point of all of them? Do we do we try to break down each one? All of them ultimately result are all of them are connected to the fact that he's bringing judgment against the whole house of Israel, both the north and the south. Judgment's coming upon Israel. He's viewing them as the same, and he's bringing judgment. That's how the chapter begins, right? Uh, um, you uh, you only have I known. I'm going to punish you. Then he says, "Can two walk together except they be agreed?" And then he goes through all the questions. What what is the what's the Basic summary of the point behind these questions. How would you summarize that? that I, I really, I hope there's some good discussion about this. But there's one specific one. Well, we'll have to, well, I, I, I don't think, well, I don't think it may be necessarily a problem. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. That there be an effect from that, you see. And that we're not listening to the problem any more than this nation is listening to the Word of God today. Then shall there be evil in a city, and the Lord hath not done it. Now, the word evil here does not mean that which is sinful or wrong. Okay. Now, this is the verse that causes problems. I know everyone gets caught up on the word evil, and I'll let him answer, answer that. But here's the thing. Shall there be evil in a city, and the Lord hath not done it? Some translations have it this way. If there is a calamity in a city, if there is a calamity, if there is a tragedy, if there is disaster, will not the Lord have done it? Now, we have to ask ourselves... Because this guy, we we've talked about this in, in relation to chapter one. I brought this up because these are these I think are very important kind of philological questions and philosophical questions that we can't ignore. When we see events happen in the world, we have a tendency that if it's good, then somehow it's God. If it's bad, then it's clearly not God. But obviously, chapter one and chapter two has shown that these horrible things that are coming, they're being brought on to them by God. But at the same time, when something bad happens, do we immediately think that it's punishment? Because bad things happened to Job. It wasn't punishment, right? Sometimes Israel was, was financially blessed and everything was going great up to this point. So was, that was all of those blessings from God or not? There, there's, that we're always trying to figure out how to interpret the events that happened around us. Okay, God, God must be mad. No, no, God must be upset, uh, happy. No, God is, God is furious. No, God thinks that what I've done is good. We're always trying to interpret that. And I have often said that it's almost impossible to do so. But we do know this, that whatever happens, God is involved in so what he constantly keeps emphasizing in Amos is, hey, whatever you see happening, God is involved. God is the one carrying this out. 
So if calamity comes to the city, God is involved in it. If horrible things happen to these nations, God is involved in it because he, this is the way to understand life. Everything, God is working everything according to his goodwill and pleasure. Now that is sometimes massively troubling when we're talking about horrible things that happen, but God is involved in some way, shape or form. So we're right back to kind of dealing with that theological issue that we've dealt with before. But all right, let's 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 continue. It means calamity, our judgment for that matter. And shall there be a calamity in the city? And that means, friends, that always in this world, as far as God's children are concerned, there's no such thing as an accident. No such thing as an accident for a child of God today. There must be the cause for the effect. There has to be. And God is not moving this universe today in some foolish, idle manner. And therefore, when there's a calamity, there ought to be a lesson learned from it. I believe that if America had learned the lesson of the Dust Bowl and of the drought period, and the depression, that we would never have had to fight World War II. We just didn't listen. And we didn't listen in World War II. And then we went to Vietnam. And we are not listening today. He constantly speaks of America as like America is God's people, right? No, that, hey, if, that like God is trying to give us a message to bring us back to him, almost like, like the, the nation is the church. No, the, Israel was in a covenant. Well, I, it's always weird how preachers speak of America, almost like, no, you see Israel, covenant relation. America is the exact same way. And I just don't, I reject that. America wasn't, it's not Israel. And we constantly speak of America, America, like we take these principles and go, no, this is God dealing with his people. God, now I'm not saying that the things that happen in our nation are not, God is not involved in, they're involved. But what we have a tendency to see, is see, God is telling us to turn back to him. That as a nation, turn back to, as a nation? No, as, indiv- as God's people, we're to turn to him. It's just weird that the nation constantly gets spoken of like America's like the church and that God is working in, in, in the nation like he does in the church, like he, like in the lives of his people. But America as a nation is not God's people. It's just another nation on the pages, uh, on the pages of history or will be on the pages of history. It's just a na- another nation in a long line of nations. Israel was unique. That was God's people. So it's interesting how we will see what God did to Israel. And we just immediately believe that that is not just descriptive, but somehow prescriptive to how we, how God works for us. And I'm just not, I'm not, I'm not necessarily a fan of that, of that way of thinking. I just, I don't see America as God working in America like he did Israel. Israel was in a covenant relationship with him. The church, we're in a covenant relationship with, we are a part of the new covenant, the church, not the nation. But it, it constantly like, oh, see, this is what God does in the nation of Israel. Well, that's, see, that's what God did in the nation of America, right? So he was trying to get America and say, hey, because you're my people, I'm going to bring judgment on you because you didn't follow, you didn't listen to the warning of the Dust Bowl. So that's why you went to World War II. Those are, that's a major jump. 
I, I believe that in all of those tra- calamities, God is involved, no question, because while well, he works all things according to his good pleasure and will. Just don't, we don't sometimes know the will. We don't know. But I, it, it can't be a call for the nation to come back to God. The na- has America ever been a nation to God? There's been Christians in the nation. There have been churches in the nation. But the nation is a secular institution. It's a secular government. It's a secular, it's not God. It's not, it's so weird how Christians do that. I don't understand. I truly don't understand it. At all. And my friend, if you think prosperity is just around the corner, may I say to you, we haven't come to that corner yet. God will not let any nation dwell in peace and prosperity when they're in sin. Well, he's saying this around the 70s or the eight, or maybe in the 1970s. You're telling me there hasn't been great times of prosperity and peace in America since the 70s? What are you talking? I mean, we've had massive economic booms, stock market going through the roof, prosperity everywhere. What are you talking about? We've had major times of peace. We've had times of conflict as well, but we haven't had been in a world war. So I, I, I don't know, like, I, I just, because we, we treat America like it's the church. I, I don't know. Let's continue. Oh, they may have a period of it, but judgment will come. Now, friends, this man, Amos, asked seven questions that actually pertain to what we would call the natural world, the world of nature, and they illustrate the fact that for every effect there is a cause and that the judgment of God that's coming is not accidental or it's not a whim on his part, nor is he being peevish at all, but it is a result that has been caused by the sin of the people. Now, verse 7, he makes this statement. He says, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. Now, the fact of the matter is that God will not move in judgment until he gives his message to the prophets. He'll let them know what he intends to do. And the prophets have been given the message, and they are to give it. Verse 8 says, The lion hath roared, who will not fear? The Lord God hath spoken, who can but prophesy. Now, this has been the method of the Lord, that he has spoken always. He's given a warning concerning judgment that is coming. He has also told to those that are his own something concerning the future. And especially when judgment is coming, why God has always given a warning to mankind. And it's not because people today do not have a word from God. The problem is they will not hear that word from God. And we find here that he reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets. 
Now, today, those things are revealed in the Word of God. I feel that this book is as up-to-date as tomorrow morning's paper, because tomorrow morning's paper will be out of date by noon when the afternoon edition comes out. But the Word of God then will be good for the next day, and on and on. God's method has been this way. Now, you will recall that during Noah's day, God had this man Noah preach for 120 years about a flood that was coming as a judgment from God. And the world did not heed that message. Now, he, you remember, let Abraham know ahead of time of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's a good thing that he did that because if he hadn't have done that, There'd have been a great deal of misunderstanding. And as a result, Abraham would have got a wrong viewpoint of Almighty God. It's been God's method to reveal things like that. He told his own yonder in the upper room. He says, "...henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I've called you friends, for all things that have heard of my Father..." I have made known unto you. That's John 15, 15. In other words, the Lord Jesus himself says that the Spirit of God is going to tell you about things to come. And he gave forewarning to Joseph of the years of famine that were coming down in Egypt. That has been God's method. Elijah walked into the courts of Ahab and Jezebel and said, you're in for a drought because there'll not be rain or dew these years except by my word. And I'm not saying anything, I'm leaving. And he walked out of the court so that our Lord could tell his apostles yonder when he was gathered with them on the Mount of Olives in the Olivet Discourse. He told them about the coming destruction of Jerusalem, that it would be destroyed, not one stone would be left upon another. So it's been God's method to do that. And that's all that Amos is saying here. You see, they've been highly critical of him. He says, I want you to know that the Lord reveals his secrets. He lets you know that judgment is coming. And you wouldn't feel bad. Well, you'd feel bad, but you'd appreciate it if your doctor would tell you what your physical condition really is. I have a very wonderful cancer specialist that I went to, and he told me I had cancer and what I should do. And I still go for x-rays, and then I'll wait for his report. And he'll tell me the truth, what it has to say. It's strange that people today want to do like the proverbial ostrich, stick our heads in the sand, and we don't want to hear the bad news of judgment that is coming. They say, you're a pessimist, you're a killjoy, you're a gloomcaster. But may I say to you that God follows a certain principle that for every effect there's a cause, and God never sends judgment unless there has been the sin of the people. Now, he makes it also very clear that the prophet is obligated to. In fact, he ought to be in fear. Be very frank with you. I feel sorry today for the liberal 
who's refusing to declare God's message. He makes it clear here, the lion hath roared, who will not fear? God has spoken. Now let's give his word out. Let's speak what God has to say. And let's get off of this social gospel. Well, it's sort of like being on dope. We're on a trip of sweetness and light, rose water and sunshine. Everything's going to work out nice today. Well, I've been told that all my life by politicians and preachers, that the pot of gold is at the end of the rainbow, and we're going to arrive shortly. Well, I've been on this trip a long ways most of this century, and we haven't arrived yet. It gets worse and worse, and they won't face up to what the real problem is. Now, notice as he moves on, he says, publish in the palaces at Ash." Now, before we move on, I just, to me, it's a little bit humorous when he says, the lion hath roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? To me, it's a roundabout way saying, hey, don't blame me. Blame God. God. My message comes from God. God is the one doing the roaring. I'm just repeating the roaring. I'm just, I'm just sharing the, God is doing the roaring. God is doing the judging. I'm just telling you what is coming. So don't blame me. I'm just giving you the message. I'm not the one who wrote the message or created the message. So I'm just the messenger, all right? Don't don't shoot the messenger because I didn't create the message. It was just given to me when God roars. And there's that roaring again, which I think is interesting. That roaring shows up. How many times does the roaring concept show up? Because it starts right there immediately in chapter 1, verse uh, two, and he said, the Lord will roar from Zion. I'm, I'm like, let's just look. I'm just, I'm just interested. Maybe it's not as many times as I think, and it's, so it's not significant, but you just keep seeing it. You keep seeing it. Let's just, let's just try it out. Let's try. Roar. Okay, well, obviously, no, I've got that wrong. Let's go with, uh, let's go with the minor, uh, minor prophets. Okay, roar. Shows up in Amos 1, 2, and th- uh, 3, 4. But it, I thought it was somewhere else in 3. Maybe it was, uh, see here. Oh, well, the lion will roar. Yeah, okay, there's three. Let me look here. I'm looking in the wrong book. I'm in the book of Joel. I'm like, why is that not making any sense? Shows up in chapter 3, verse 4. Well, a lion roar. And then it shows up uh, roared in chapter uh uh, chapter three, verse eight. So maybe it doesn't show up. Maybe it doesn't show up again. I just think it's, I don't know. That's just jumping out at me today. That's just jumping out at me today. So roar is only used twice, one, two, and three, four. And then roared shows up in three, uh, eight. So maybe there's another way of saying it, another tense of it somewhere else, but it's not coming to my mind right now. Well, let's continue. Ashdod. Now, Ashdod is down in Philistia, in the country of the Philistines. By the way, today, Israel has it. They built apartments there like mad, and they have built a harbor there. It's a man-made harbor. A big refinery is built there, and they're bringing the oil into Ashdod today. It's rather amusing. I remember that a friend of mine who teaches prophecy, 
He likes to find fulfillments of prophecy today, and I don't think it's being fulfilled. You remember Moses said that Asher would dip his foot in oil. Well, Haifa, way up in the northern part of Israel, that place was where the oil pipeline came in. And there was a refinery there, the big oil tanks, and the tankers were out there loading up. A friend of mine says, see, that's a fulfillment of prophecy. Well, today, that pipeline has been cut. No oil is coming into Haifa at all except that which is brought in by tankers. But down now in Ashdod, they have a pipeline across the Negev, and it is brought by tankers in on the other side into the Red Sea side. And then it is piped across to this refinery in Ashdod. And it looks like it would be the tribe of Dan that dipped his foot in oil today. And my friend, quite interestingly, he's forgotten all about this fulfillment of prophecy. You see, that's the foolishness of today, of being rather picky unish and picking out these petty things as if they're fulfillment of prophecy today. I personally do not think prophecy is being fulfilled in that land at all. I do see the setting of a stage that will later on bring the fulfillment of prophecy, but not today. So that what we have here is Ashdod, but not as it is today. Ashdod was then a prominent city in Philistia among the Philistines. And he says now, let this word go out to them and also in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves upon the mountains of Samaria and behold the great tumults in the midst of her and the oppressed in the midst of her. Now, Samaria, it's in a most beautiful location. This, this is my, this is a powerful passage to me, right? This, this, this one is super powerful to me because this is basically what he's saying, okay? So he's going to go Ashdod, Philistia. He's going to the Egyptians, which at one point Israel was in captivity to them. And they're mentioned in chapter three, verse one. So we're going to go to Philistia. We're going to go to the Egyptians and you're going to publish there saying, everyone, come to Samaria. Come now. Come, come on, pack up. Come to Samaria and stand in the mountains of Samaria and you're going to watch the tumults in the midst thereof of her. Now, now, Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. Come, come and watch it. In other words, these pagan nations are being brought to come watch the judgment that's going to happen to God's people. The God's people who probably felt that they're morally superior to the Egyptians in, in, in Philistia. They're morally superior. They're better. All of these nations coming. No, watch what's going to happen. I'm going to be judgment. I'm going to bring judgment on my people. I wish sometimes that Christians would see our own sins before we see everyone else because we constantly think we're morally superior, we're better, and that if you're a Christian, you don't do this, you don't do this, you don't do that. When those things show up in the church constantly, okay, but we never, but we we somehow still think we're morally superior. And this shows, no, think you're morally superior, but judgment's going to come upon you. Well, because you're God's people. And then guess what? The nations are going to watch it occur. And that is 
It, it, it's, it's pretty crazy. This is how one, uh, this is how one person put it. And I quote, their reputations for injustice, speaking of Israel, um, their, their, their reputations for injustice and brutality would be resented or well, their, hang on, I'm sorry, their reputations, the Egyptians and the Philistines for injustice and brutality would be resented by the Israelites who would consider themselves in every way morally support, superior, superior to those whom God had summoned as witnesses. It would also show that covenant law is not the only criterion for testing Israel's behavior, but by any standard of intentional decency, they have become culprits, right? So in other words, our international decency. So let me read that again. I'm sorry, because my mind's going a million miles a second. Their reputations for injustice and brutality, in other words, the Egyptians and uh, Philistines, would be resented by the Israelites. Wait, who are these people? They're unjust, they're brutal, they're horrible, they're, they're, they're evil. And, and Israel would consider themselves to be obviously morally support, superior to every one of them. He, they, they would have resented them, all right? And God had summoned these people who are unjust and brutal, that he summoned them as witnesses? These witnesses are horrible and evil. In other words, immediately Israel would probably be like, how dare you invite them? But this is what it would show, that covenant law, was not the only criteria for testing Israel's behavior, but by the standards of just international decency, they had become culprits. In other words, you think you're better than everyone else. You're just as guilty as everyone else. When is God's people going to see that we're just as guilty as everyone else? And so, maybe not in the exact same sins, but similar and we, 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 we almost can't see that. I know of no more wonderful spot to build a palace than there was there. And that's where Ahab and Jezebel were. And Omri had really been the one to build a city, and he was the father of Ahab. And sin had become so rampant, so out in the open. You see, they had the new morality going there, great guns and... There were hills all around. I'd call them hills. They call them mountains. But now God says, all right, all of you people from Ashdod, all of you from Egypt, come up and watch these people, how they are sinned and turned from the Lord. Verse 10, for they know not to do right, saith the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. In other words, they're bringing in the booty there. See, he chooses nations who are guilty of injustice, of robbing, of violence. And he says, now come guys and watch because Israel, they store up violence and robbery in their palaces. In other words, God's people are no better than the nations around them. This is the constant truth of the Bible. God's people are never better than the people around them. We constantly act like them, live like them and commit the same sins, even though we wanted to act like that we're somehow better than everyone else of that which they've been stealing. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, an adversary there shall be even round about the land, and he shall bring down thy strength from thee, and thy palaces shall be spoiled. And the palaces of Samaria, they're in ruins today. We'll say more about them in just a minute. Now, notice verse 12. Thus saith the Lord, as the shepherd taketh out of the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, 
so shall the children of Israel be taken out to dwell in Samaria in the corner of a bed and in Damascus on a couch. In other words, they were going up to Damascus, and I have a notion what he really means, they go up there to commit adultery because of the fact that was a very sinful nation. And God says, just as a shepherd, he kills a lion, like you remember David said he did, a lion that got into the flock, and he killed a sheep, and all that's left is a couple legs there and an ear of the lamb. It's been killed and eaten. God says, that's the way I intend to destroy the northern kingdom. You see, their responsibility was great because they had light from heaven. Verse 13, "...hear ye, and testify in the house of Jacob, saith the Lord God, the God of hosts, that in the day that I shall judge the transgressions of Israel upon him, I will also judge the altars of Bethel." That is, where the golden calf. God said, "...I will judge it, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground." God says, "...I intend to remove that." Now, will you listen to verse 15, the last verse here of chapter 3? And I will smite the winter house with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall have an end, saith the Lord. Now, what does he mean by the houses of ivory? Well, Ahab and Jezebel had built there in Samaria, which is a city, on top of this hill, most beautiful location, they had built there a tremendous palace. You can see the ruins of it today. It covers a great deal of ground, and it was built in a place, and I particularly noticed that this time. I didn't the first time. That that palace covers the very brow of the hill, the very top of the hill, the tip-top of the hill, so that from their palace... They could look in every direction. If they looked toward the west, they could see the Mediterranean Sea on a clear day. And if they looked to the east, they could see the Jordan Valley. If they looked to the north, they could see the valley of Esdraelon and Mount Hermon in the distance. If they looked to the south, they could see Jerusalem. What a view! Now, they built there a palace of ivory. Of course, the enemy in days gone by has carted away that beautiful ivory that went there. But excavations have been going on there recently. In fact, Israel is excavating there. And our guide told us that they have found several very delicate vessels of ivory. Apparently, one of them was for perfume and uh, other vessels probably for wine. So that ivory was the color scheme, if you please, of the palace. Everything was done in ivory. Apparently, Ab and Jezebel had the best interior decorator of the period to come up and decorate for them. It was a place of luxury. But God says, it'll perish, and I will destroy it and bring it to an end. And I do not know of a more desolate spot than the ruins of Samaria on top of that hill today. I say to you today, friends, that God has certainly fulfilled prophecy. 
you will not see prophecy being fulfilled in that land, but you can see prophecy that has been fulfilled in that land, and you can see prophecy that's going to be fulfilled in that land and the stage being set. But I still insist we're not seeing the fulfillment of prophecy over there today. And that ends his discussion on chapter 3. I just think the chapter is... The, the seven questions are interesting. Yeah, exactly what... Is it just about cause and effect? It's interesting. That, that concept that, hey, if, if there's evil in the city, if there's calamity in the city, God brought it. It raises some theological questions. But to me, the most powerful part of this chapter that really jumps out is, hey, hey, Philistines, Egyptians, come, come to Samaria. Watch what's going to happen. Yeah, and, and it's almost like, and he's speaking this to Israel. Hey, you know who's being invited to watch you be destroyed? The Philistines and the Egyptians. Those people you think you're better than? Guess what? You're going to be judged and they're going to watch your judgment. What if God's people were more concerned with the judgment that's going to come on the house of the Lord? Judgment should always begin with ourselves. We should see our sin before we see anyone else's sin. We should condemn us before we condemn others. That ends Amos chapter 3. There's, there's so much there. I, I don't even know. Wow. Okay, I'll just stop because we're already over an hour. I'll just stop, but we've got a lot to talk about. So let the conversation begin in the Discord channel or email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Let me know your thoughts. All right, we'll stop there for, for now. We'll definitely be doing something at some uh, other point in the day. And so make sure you have the Church One app, Church O-N-E, search for Theology Central, make sure all the notifications are turned on, and guess what? You'll, basically, you'll be notified every time we go live, and you can keep up with everything. And considering how much content we produce on a monthly basis, I think that's, that's the best way to use Church One is, is for us. I really do. I really do. I mean, I know you can use it for other broadcasters, but you want to use it for us. You really do. I promise you do. All right. So do that. All right. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great day. God bless.